listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today's message is probably one of the most significant that you're going to hear if you're interested even a little bit about following God. Unless, of course, you have one of four problems, you might be unconscious and in a coma. Now, if that's the case for you, if you're unconscious and in a coma, then you're not going to hear what I have to say today, but we will do everything we can to help you get out of that coma. We'll call an EMT, an emergency medical technician, to get you out of your coma. Glad to do it. But secondly, you might have a problem similar to Hendrik Helmer, who lives in Darwin, Australia, the northern part of Australia. Hendrik was sleeping on Wednesday and something crawled into his ear. Caused a lot of pain for him. His flatmate, that's what they say in Australia, you have a flatmate, took him to the hospital, took him to the emergency room, and the doctor realized, you know, Hendrick was concerned that maybe there was a poisonous spider that had crawled into his ear. That part of Australia, there's all type of creepy things, nasty things, poisonous things. Hendrick was concerned that maybe a poisonous spider had crawled into his ear. Well, it wasn't a spider. The doctor found out after pouring hot oil into his ear, poured oil into his ear to kill this thing that was in his ear that was in the midst of the death throngs, the death thrash, took some forceps and pulled out a one-inch cockroach out of Hendrik Helmer's ear. And uh, Hendrik was relieved. But you might have a problem like Hendrik. You might have a cockroach in your ear, in which case you won't be able to hear what I'm going to say. You might have something worse where you might need to go to an eye, ear, nose, and throat specialist. You might have wax buildup in your ears, making it difficult, if not impossible, for you able to hear the word of God. Today, in that case, today's message, not going to be able to be comprehended by you, absorbed, appreciated. Or you might be a person who the worries and the cares of the world have distracted you from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, I fear for you. That just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, you too might be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The worries of the world, the cares of the world, the distractions of the world might have such a hold on you that you might be in danger of missing what God wants to say to you today. And finally, you might be in this fourth position. You might not have even begun your walk with God. You might not even be sure that you want to begin your walk with God. And therefore, what I have to say is significant to you, but you need to make it significant if you want to take your next steps. Turn with me. In our Father's Word, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. We're going to pick up, as we always do, where we left off. As we go verse by verse through the entire Gospel of Luke. And he, Jesus, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him 
will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, there is no instance in Scripture of Jesus participating in athletics, in sporting events. Now, if we were to postulate, would Jesus have been a good athlete? Is Jesus a good athlete since he's alive today? If we were to postulate about that, you're probably coming down. If you know anything that uh, you should know about the scriptures and about Jesus being God in the flesh, I would not want to go against Jesus in any type of a tournament. I don't care if it's water polo. I don't care if it's rowing. I mean, they had boats back there in the New Testament times, first century. They had boats. They could have had a rowing competition. I would not want to be matched against Jesus. But we have an indication from the way Jesus communicated that he was excellent at ping pong. Jesus had a phenomenal ability to go back and forth between his audiences. In the verses immediately preceding what we just read, Jesus was talking to the apostles. Remember when Peter makes this confession of Jesus. Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? They say that maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And, G- and Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charges them not to tell anyone, which seems contradictory if you're objective is to be recognized as the Messiah, why would you tell the apostles not to tell anybody you're the Messiah? Because we get an indication from Scripture in John chapter 6, the other people wanted to come and take and make Jesus king by force. They were continually taking the teachings of Jesus, misunderstanding them, twisting them into their own mold of what God and what the Messiah would be. And Jesus was being careful at this early stage in the lives and the teaching and the mentoring, the discipling of the disciples of the 12, that they weren't cut loose too soon to try to read into the understanding of Christ what their own interpretation was. So that's why Jesus told the apostles, right now it's not the time. There will be a time when I'm going to want you to tell everybody and you're going to comprehend what it means that I'm the Christ. And that's when Jesus begins to teach them about his suffering and being rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the crucifixion. He unloads that heavy load on them that he's going to be crucified. Jesus defines what Christ means. The mission of the Christ is to die. And that was in Jesus' inner circle. The 12, the apostles. But then he volleys to the rest of the audience, to everyone else, he says. This is what we just read here in this passage of scripture. Jesus is ping-ponging back and forth, talking to the apostles, teaching them, training them, building them up, and then changing his audience to the audience at large. And this is what he says. As the scriptures say in verse 23, he said to all, this is not just the 12, this is all of the people. You see, there are continually throughout the scriptures, disciples and dabblers. There are those who are true disciples, true followers of Jesus, true individuals who are following after Jesus, and then there are always the dabblers, people who are not really disciples, but they're just in the throngs, in the crowd, following along, but not really following. And this is what Jesus is doing, ping-ponging back and forth, as Luke presents in his scripture, Jesus' teachings and discussions and his mentoring with the 12, and then his inner circle with Peter, James, and John, as we're going to see our next time together. 
And then Jesus focuses his attention on the larger crowds and is throwing out an invitation to them. Would you like to follow me too? Would you like to make the transition? Would you like to cross over from being a dabbler to being a true disciple? Would you like to stop merely hearing about me and mentally stimulating your gray matter and actually get into the the, the teachings that I'm giving you and get into the life that's found in following me and recognizing me as your Messiah? So Jesus says, this to all. Last time I checked, that would include you. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now when he says, if anyone would come after me, he means everyone. You have to be very careful that you don't recreate God in your own image You don't recreate or redefine what it means to follow Jesus after your own conception, after your own understanding. Jesus has just explained to the apostles, he's just defined for them what the Christ is, who the Christ is, himself, and that central to the life of Christ would be the death of the anointed one, the death of Christ. That Jesus lived to die. That's what it would mean for Jesus to be the Messiah. They needed to be given the understanding, the definition of Christ, so that they didn't read into it their own understanding. And likewise, the 12 and anyone and everyone, each and every one of us, needs to have a definition of what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, here's what that must look like. Be careful you're not trying to follow God on your own terms. Be careful you're not redefining discipleship. Because if you begin to do that and you miss the heartbeat of God, if you miss the definition of discipleship that Jesus gives to us, you're a very poor student. And poor students don't go on to achieve anything significant or noteworthy in their lives. Listening determines understanding. Understanding determines lifestyle. And what Jesus is doing for us here is he's helping you. He's helping me. He's helping anyone and everyone understand what the lifestyle of a disciple is to look like. What is the distinguishing characteristic above all else that a disciple would be recognized by? Jesus is painting it here for them in very black and white, very graphic, very violent imagery that for them, the 12 and the rest of the crowd to have heard these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus would have just stupefied them. Crucifixion. See, most of us, when we think of crucifixion, we think of one man, Jesus especially, with nails being driven into his wrists or his hands, the Hebrew word that's used. My hands and my feet could also apply to my arms, my hands, not just hands, but also wrists. Anatomically, To support a body, you probably would have had to put nails into the wrists, not the hands. Otherwise, the hand would have just broken away. 
But typically when we think of crucifixion, we think of one man, Jesus, hanging on a cross, nails in his wrists or hands, nails in his feet, dying for your sins, dying for mine, and the verdict is what will you do with what he did? That needs to be decided, the verdict. You need to make that decision if you haven't already. And the imagery of Jesus fighting to catch his breath, pushing up with his legs and breathing while his legs are holding him up and then taking that deep breath as the muscles in the arms and the muscles in the legs and the biceps and the triceps and the forearms would get weak, taking a breath and then resting the arms, resting the legs and holding the breath as long as possible until the lungs would need a break, a break and then the feet would be pushing up again. The legs would be pushing up again and the breathing would begin and this would go up and down and up and down for hours and in some instances, this is why they wanted to break the legs of the people to the left and the right of Jesus, the criminals on the cross. Criminals would be on the cross not just for days, sometimes weeks. And by the way, Jesus as he's presented in the movies that we see about him hanging on the cross, very sanitized portrayal of Jesus being clothed. Most likely, when Jesus hung on the cross, he was completely naked. There was nothing left to the imagination, nothing left to shame Jesus anymore. The punishment that gave us peace was upon the shoulders squarely of Jesus. Most of us think about that when we think of crucifixion. But here, what Jesus does after defining for them his role and the importance and centrality of his own death, the shedding of his own blood for you and for me, he says, it's not just my crucifixion that's central to life. It's yours as well. Every student must be just like his teacher. If crucifixion was to be a highlight of the life of Jesus, I say a highlight because the next highlight after crucifixion is resurrection. But if the crucifixion is central to the life of Jesus, that he lived to die so that you could have life through him, Jesus is making it very clear that crucifixion must be the hallmark, the characteristic, the chief characteristic of anybody and everybody who is a true disciple. Until that happens, you're still a dabbler. Notice the imagery that Jesus uses here. He uses an adverb. He throws an adverb in there, a five-letter word. He said to all in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's the adverb, daily, a quantifying word that describes the idea of what does it mean, what does it look like to follow Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and not a mere dabbler, what will it look like? You must take up your cross, not just initially, by recognizing who Jesus is as Savior and God, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. That's important as a means of entry level, there's always a beginning, an aha moment when you recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. But that is the beginning of a brand new lifestyle, an exchange that takes place. 
What Luke is presenting to us through the teachings of Jesus, what he's reminding us of all the things he could have recorded about the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, he's bringing to our attention this mesmerizing teaching that would not have escaped the mind, the heart, the graphicness of anybody with an earshot of what Jesus was saying to everyone. This is the idea of somebody who from the time they are condemned to the time of the crucifixion, it was very clear that they would be carrying their own crossbeam and making that journey to their own personal, public death. And everyone who witnessed it, and it was obvious and clear to the person who was condemned, would know that they would never, ever return. No turning back. From the time that this person was condemned to the time that they were actually crucified, there was now a new journey. And all that person had to contemplate was the fact that they were going to die and they would never come back. In Roman times in the first century, when a man or a person was condemned to be crucified, they would be stripped of their legacy, their estate would not be passed on to their heirs. It would, they, they would be stripped. Anything that they'd worked for their entire life would no longer be theirs to give to the people that they would have wanted to inherit it. They would lose it. In fact, in many instances, the, the individual was even denied a burial plot. Get the picture? See, we don't totally understand it today the way Jesus' audience here would have understood it. The mouths would have just dropped open. The gasps. Do you understand what you're saying, Jesus, when you're talking about taking up my cross, everything I've ever hoped for, dreamed for, imagined in my life to come true, to be realized, being a self-made man, self-made woman, everything that my life has revolved around for the, the security of myself, my reputation, my welfare, you are asking me not just to jeopardize it, but to walk away from it once and for all and day after day. Jesus uses the five-letter word daily. Take up your cross daily. We've all heard people say, maybe you've said it yourself, well, it's just my cross to bear. I'm not that attractive, so that's my cross that I'm bearing. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Well, I've got some physical ailment that is harassing me. That's just my cross to bear. No, there are a lot of people who don't even know Jesus Christ, don't have any concern about Jesus Christ who have physical ailments. That's not a cross to bear. The idea of the cross is made clear throughout Scripture. Here at an entry level by Jesus Christ, I want to turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 to get a little bit of an understanding of what this means to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul lays it out for us in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. The word that's used, the phraseology that's used here is that there is a once for all event that happened in the life of Paul the Apostle. A turning point. You need to be able to say that yourself. If you can't say that you've been crucified with Christ, then you're still a dabbler. You're not a disciple. 
Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. But look at this, ongoing repercussions. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, meaning the body, physiology. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a contrast here that Paul is portraying for us. He's helping us understand the difference between a controlling life and a crucified life. You know there's a difference between a controlling life and a crucified life. Here's where I begin to talk about somebody you know. Here's where you begin to take notes because I know that none of this will apply and be pertinent to you. The difference between living a controlling life versus a crucified life. See, a controlling life is where you're a control freak. Your life is about me, myself, and I, and self-preservation, and you are a controlling person. You must know somebody like that, because I know that I'm not talking about you. I know that you don't struggle with control issues at any time in your life, where you get bent out of shape because things aren't going the way you like them to be going, where you can't change a circumstance, you can't change a person the way you wish that they would change if only they would change how much easier your life would be. Oh, where are those lightning bolts from God when you want them to strike? See, before you are crucified with Christ and before you embrace this idea of taking up your cross daily, you're going to have a struggle with control of being in the driver's seat. But Paul says, the life I now live, I live by faith. Faith is the overflow. It's the modus operandi of a crucified life. Where you're not trying to control the events and the circumstances and the people in your life, but you're trusting God to do something in your life day after day, moment by moment. God has a plan for your life, and it's bigger and more wonderful than the biggest dream that you can imagine for your life on the greatest day you've ever had. God has already outdone you. But it's interesting that out of all the metaphors that Jesus could use to describe discipleship, out of all the imagery the master communicator could have drawn from, the expert in ping pong, Jesus, the imagery that he brings to the forefront at the beginning of helping the disciples and the crowds understand what it is to be a real disciple, the imagery that he uses is one of crucifixion. And until you make a deliberate choice to live a crucified life, you're still dabbling with God. You're not really interested in discipleship. A crucified life is one that you embrace, one that we embrace as being central to the DNA of glorifying God and knowing him. Walking with him in intimacy where it's no longer you at the epicenter of the universe. The creator of the universe, Jesus, is at the epicenter of everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel because you're living a crucified life. Philippians chapter two, verse 21, Paul helps us understand that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Look with me, Philippians two twenty-one. For they, people, in his day, 
all sought their own interests, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. When you're living a crucified life, when you have crossed over from being a dabbler to a disciple, you are consumed, concerned, passionate about, centered upon the concerns of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're living an idolatrous life. You can't be both controlling and crucified simultaneously. God is asking you, he's reminding us through the teachings of Jesus today, he's asking you to give up being a dabbler and to jump into being a disciple. He's asking you to take up your cross every day as the means of following him. And what does that look like? What does it look like to pick up your cross daily and to follow Jesus? I think, again, we go to the scriptures, the word of God, Colossians chapter three, verse five. Colossians chapter three, verse five, look with me. As the mighty apostle Paul, made mighty by the hand of God, says this in verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The idea, again, of your personal death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. I'm not talking about God-controlled passion. It's talking about worldly passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's why Jesus hung on the cross in the first place. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Look at the past tense imagery. Paul is talking to disciples, not dabblers here in the book of Colossians, reminding them that you used to live life around your own interests, your own desires, doing your own thing in your own power, but that's supposed to be past tense. Now your life is to be characterized by a fundamental difference. Verse seven, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, verse eight, you must put them all away. Don't you like that everything is nailed to the cross right there? You must put not some of them away, not most of them away. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Look at that, the idea of being renewed, knowledge being central to your maturity and your growth, that there is an initial event where you're crucified with Christ, and then this idea of daily walking in a crucified life before Jesus causes the continual and perpetual renewal. You are a work in progress. Look at the person sitting to your left, sitting to your right. They're a work in progress. Being renewed, central to that renewing process is being in the word of God. You can't worship and serve a God you don't know. Certainly, you're not going to rise to the heights you could or go to the depths you would if you're not in the word of God. Verse 11, here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on them. Look at the commandment that's given here. It doesn't just happen to you. You are to put this on, similar to what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. 
put on the full armor of God. It doesn't just, not something that automatically just happens to you. It has to be a deliberate act of your will. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. In other words, the very things that do not automatically come to light and come to the surface when you're living a controlling life, when you're walking in the flesh, when you're not living a crucified life, when you forget or neglect to take up your cross daily, these things will not automatically spring out as a matter of characteristics. But when you are walking in your daily crucifixion, when you're living a crucified life, these are the things when you deliberately by an act of your will put these things on The old nature is taken care of. And Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Imagine that, bearing with one another. In other words, it's not possible to bear with other people to the degree to which you will be able to do it unless you're living a crucified life. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Central to the distinguishing mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ, central to the DNA of who a disciple is and how a disciple lives, is forgiveness. Every once in a while, I'll get an email from somebody or I'll get the opportunity to meet with somebody in person who goes to great lengths explaining to me about how they want to serve God and they want to love God and they want to do ministry. They want to minister for Jesus. God's called them to the ministry and they know that God has called them to the ministry and then they'll go on to the litany of their spiritual gifts and their natural talents and how God, since they were this age or that age, had put this into them, instilled this into them, and they'll go on and on with all these explanations, but the whole reason I'm meeting with them in the first place or interacting with them by email in the first place is because they have a bitter root. They will not forgive somebody. Now that tells me, based on the teachings of Scripture, now listen, I've been there, you've been there too, you might be there now. Until you forgive somebody as the Lord in Christ forgave you, you're dabbling. You're not walking as a disciple. Because one of the primary characteristics of being a disciple is that you are forgiving other people who do wrong to you. And I've got news for you. Somebody's going to do wrong to you probably this week. In one way or another, my wife was coming home yesterday, almost at the house, and a car right in front of her in the crossroad pulled out, and if my wife was not on the ball, knowing enough not to text while she's driving, she would have gotten cream puffed, T-boned by this other car. You might get T-boned this week. I'm not talking about a car accident. I'm talking about somebody might do something to you, say something to you that puts you in jeopardy of developing a bitter root. Now, I am not saying 
that at times in your life you may struggle with forgiveness and that that's wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to struggle with forgiveness. You might need to continually, perpetually come before God and say, I am not there yet. I need to wrestle with you, God, because I want to forgive this person, these people of this wrong. I'm not quite there yet. Well, what you do is by faith you take it before God and you ask God to help you forgive. That's a good thing. That's a sign of maturity. That's a sign of discipleship. You're not a dabbler because disciples are concerned with forgiving because we read it in scripture that we are commanded and it's not suggested to us we are commanded to forgive others as in Christ God forgave you there's nothing that you have done there's nothing that somebody has done to you listen to this there's nothing that somebody has done to you that is worse than what you have done to Jesus And Jesus forgave you completely. The only reason why we don't forgive and we can't forgive other people is because we have spiritual amnesia. We forget the depths of our depravity. We forget how much we've done that we drove the nails into Jesus. We flogged him. It was your sin and mine that brought him to the cross It's a good thing to wrestle with forgiveness and to ask God by faith, help me to forgive that person. The feelings might not be there. Listen, by my house, there's the old train that comes by, that steam train on on the trail here. Hanover Junction, you can take this train from New Freedom and back, the old steam engine that recreates the route that Abraham Lincoln took to Gettysburg and his funeral procession was on that train. Listen, what guides that train, what's at the front of that train is the steam engine, not the caboose. You don't steer, guide, direct a train with the caboose. You do it with the engine. And some, some of us, many of us have thought bought into this misunderstanding that my feelings should be driving my life. No, your feelings are a byproduct of faith. Faith must be the engine that guides your life. So if you're over here asking God to help you forgive, that's a wonderful thing. Eventually, God will work in your feelings. In the meantime, you operate by faith. You forgive, you release. That's a good place to be because God will give you the breakthrough eventually in your feelings. I am concerned about and God is concerned about the people, on the other hand, who know that they have a bitter root, who know that they will not forgive and are not wrestling with God. They're holding the offense against the other person, realizing that they've shackled themselves. Other people aren't even aware that you're holding them hostage by not forgiving. Really, who you're holding hostage is yourself. When somebody is not concerned about forgiving and they're remembering the sins and the offenses of another person, when you're holding a grudge and their bitter root is bearing the fruit that bitterness bears, which is dissension and stress and anxiety and heaviness, that's an indication that you've either lost sight of what it means to be a disciple in the first place. You don't even understand at an elementary level the idea of taking up your cross daily and dying to yourself. When you die to yourself, you're giving up all of your rights, all of your legacy, and then you're taking up the legacy of Jesus Christ. You can only build one kingdom at a time, God's or yours. Which will it be? 
Now, I said that I had a special announcement that I wanted to provide today, and this is where I get to share it because I think it's an example of God moving this church forward in a quantum leap. 2012, for example, our average weekly offering was about $34,000. Average weekly offering in 2012, about $34,000. In 2013, the average weekly offering was $37,000. Glory to God. That's significant in a jump. That's significant. Now on top of that, we took the offering in December, the final offering in December, the first offering was over $88,000. Do you understand how significant that is? It was $88,294, the first regular offering. Now, you know that we took up a second offering because it was fifth Sunday. Every time we have a fifth Sunday of the month, we take up a special second offering, and that goes toward paying down the principal on our third mortgage, which, by the way, we've paid over $258,773. In 2013 alone, we've broken the $400,000 barrier. There's now only $352,959 left on that third mortgage. That's awesome, paying it down. How did we pay that down on the special fifth offering in December? $49,609.06 that was paid down toward that. On top of the regular offering of $88,000 plus. Why is that significant? I love that six cents. It's not just an a rounded off figure, the sixth sense. I love that these are people getting what it means to live a crucified life. It costs somebody something to give that kind of money, to give, to be able to pay down our debt, to be able to take care of our mortgage so that the sooner we get that paid off, the sooner we can be engaged in church planting, the sooner we can be engaged in having pastors and other church leaders come and use this campus. Listen, we've got a 30-acre campus. We're not just on this campus for the purpose of barriers and give, providing a real estate buffer with our neighbors. This campus is going to be used for the glory of God. We will have one day, by the grace of God, recording studio. We'll have adequate office space. To, for, for staff, you know, we're busting at the seams. This church has grown from an average attendance of 800 weekly within the past year to 12 or 1300 weekly in the past year. God is moving here. What? Why would I talk about money in the context of taking up your cross daily and following Jesus? Because it's a reflection that you are getting it. You're grasping what it means to give the way Jesus gave. And we are in this together to be the body of Christ and to be a church of local, regional, national, international impact. I am not just saying that. How many of you understand that I'm not just saying that? But I really believe it and you believe it too. This is the kind of church we are. And so when we demonstrate financially that that's what we're doing, it shows where our commitment is to Jesus. On top of that, we don't have membership at this church. We don't call it membership. Now, if you're listening by podcast, you might call what you have at your church membership. I strongly encourage you to get rid of the controlling terminology, the me, myself, and I terminology, membership, and to adopt a crucified terminology, which is partnership. Membership. 
Why would anybody who's a disciple and not a dabbler be concerned about what's in it for me when we can be concerned about what's in it for him? We have partnership here. And if you've been coming for a long time, it's time for you to become a partner. If you've been a member but you haven't gone through partnership, it's time for you to go through partnership because you need to know what we're about even more so. You need to be able to roll up your sleeves and get involved in the kingdom work of God by understanding what we're about and where we're going and why we're going there. That's why we call it partnership. See, Jesus uses an interesting phrase here, interesting imagery here, which does pertain to partnership here at our church. Verse 26, for whoever, in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, 9:26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. Referencing Daniel chapter 7. When Jesus is referring to himself again as the Son of Man, the imagery in Daniel 7 is the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when I come in my glory. See, he's been talking about his crucifixion. We're looking forward to the glorious return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. But Jesus uses that terminology, ashamed. We have baptisms coming up the day after our partnership weekend, February 2nd. You know, one of the reasons why you might be ashamed of Jesus on the job, one of the reasons why you might be ashamed of Jesus in your neighborhood or in your family is because you're not even willing to publicly make a statement by getting into nicely acclimated water, warm water. We don't want it too warm. But warm enough water to be comfortable in a controlled environment among a group of people who will applaud your next step with Jesus It's fundamental that you cannot be ashamed of Jesus and following Jesus in the basics. And one of those basics is baptism. And maybe by taking that next step of being baptized, you'll understand more so what it means to be crucified with Christ and take up your cross in a way that you haven't done that before. This church is moving forward, and the question is, do you want to individually move forward with this church? This church is moving forward. The question is individually, do you want to move forward with the chief shepherd of this church? His name is Jesus. There are financial illustrations. There are commitment illustrations and surrender illustrations. Over 230 people gave their lives to Christ in 2013 alone. These are the ones that we know of. These are not all the ones that we know of. Over 230 people have given their lives to Christ. Why are we not erupting in exuberant excitement over that? That's huge. When a church goes from 800 to 1,200 or 1,300 and you have that type of conversion and you have that type of debt being paid down and you have that type of investment financially and you have people like the kind of person that came into my office this week coming in and sharing their story, you know that God is moving and you want to be part of that story. You want to be one of the testimonies of living a crucified life. You want to be one of those people who says, I have been crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live but Christ lives in me and the life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This week I had a man come into my office. He was in a car accident almost two years ago and he wanted to share his story. He needed some insight, some counsel. Always scares me, always concerns me when somebody comes to me for insight and counsel. What am I going to tell them? Began to share their story. They were coming out of the side road of their house, looked to the left, looked to the right swore, not in an ungodly way, but swore that they didn't see anything to the left, pulled out, and lo and behold, there was a motorcycle, no headlight, 
No helmet on the driver. Careening down the road, hits his car. Motorcycle, brand new, falls over. The man sliding on his back. For two hours, this man of God is at that scene telling me in, in my office, for two hours he stayed at the accident site concerned about the individual, praying for the individual who was taken to the hospital. And then you know what this man did? The next day, he went to the hospital to visit the guy that was in the accident with him. Now, if you go see an attorney, attorney probably tell you, don't go anywhere near that guy, don't say anything, don't make any admission. But when you're crucified with Christ, when you take up your cross daily, it's no longer you who lives, it's Christ who lives in you. And you're not only looking out for your own interests, you're looking out for the interests of Jesus Christ. And this man of God who was living a crucified life went to the hospital to visit this man, prayed for him, encouraged him, built him up. Maybe the accident happened for no other reason for this man to be able to see the love of God. And then this man, it doesn't stop there, went above and beyond and began to write encouragement cards to the other person in the accident on a monthly basis, was writing encouragement cards and sending it to this man, the other guy who was in the accident, and encouraging him. You don't do those types of things unless you've crucified the flesh. You don't do those types of things if you're a dabbler. You do those types of things if you're a disciple. And this is a glaring, glowing illustration for us of what a crucified life looks like. I believe that God is in the throes of a mighty movement here at this church, and you have come to more than just a church service. You come to more than just hearing a message. You've come to a movement of the Spirit of God. And as you make a willing, deliberate, conscious decision to cross over from being a dabbler to being a disciple, the momentum here at this church, watch this, the momentum at this church has no hope other than to go forward. We cannot hope but go forward in the outpouring of the Spirit of God because the sum is the whole of the parts. When you get a group of people like you, when we have a group of people like we have here that is growing not just numerically but growing in depth, there is hope that the world will see that there is a God There is hope that the world will know how to change, that it's found in Jesus Christ because the world will not be changed by timid means. It will be changed by disciples who know what Jesus means, who put into practice what Jesus says and commands, that you must take up your cross, follow him daily. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Now, Jesus says something striking at the end of this passage that I want to take note of. Verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is that all about? Some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God? I want to see the kingdom of God. Does that mean that these people are 2,000 years old? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.